almost all agree that this psalm, Psalm 118, is a psalm of King David. Um, it's, the reason for that is it's written from a quality and a perspective, and it touches on uh, issues that are they're like the tectonic plates of the kingdom. They're deep, and they, you know, and they go from the beginning of the scriptural account to the end, and they involve um, our redemption and the Lord's uh, unwavering commitment to that. And uh, so, it, so it's the the. Topics are high and lofty. Um, the setting for the psalm, probably written around 1044 BC. Um, it, and if that's the date, it may be that it was at the time when Nathan confirmed the Davidic covenant with David as king. That covenant that, um, that assured him from the Lord that he would not lack a man to sit on the throne. And, uh, and that projects us forward to the greater David, uh, who David couldn't see fully, but who he trusted in. And you'll hear just refrains from this psalm um, going up that touch on that. Um, Though the psalm is almost 3,000 years old, its truths just echo forward. I mean, as you read it, um, it touches everything that matters to us. Um, It was already an oldie. It was already a 580-year-old worship tune when it was taken up in a fresh way by Israel in uh, probably 458 BC as Ezra led uh, the waves of exile back into the land uh, coming from the the Babylonian then Persian uh, deportation. This psalm in particular was taken up by the people as the temple was being rebuilt and as worship was being reinstituted. And you have to imagine um, that they sang it differently. <laughs> that, and, and when you hear the words, you'll know it, but it had to mean more to them in light of his goodness in the return than it could have ever meant before. Let me read from you um, from Ezra 3, 10 and 11. And again, if you stay riveted in Psalm 118, most of the cross-references will be up there, but um, just bear with me. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of God was laid." that great grace being made clear to them as the temple was rebuilt, as worship was again um, becoming possible. Um, As they had been chastened and in exile, the question had to be in their minds of the duration of God's goodness. I'm sure those questions were real. Does he still intend good for us? Is our hope cut off because of our own failure? Maybe maybe that's a question you've had to ask yourself, but his grace was displayed. And and so 500 years after it was written, it was taken up again. And we'll see as we progress that the song also echoes a thousand years after it was written as Jesus walked and worked in Israel. We'll hear some of those refrains go up in a little bit. And we'll also recognize that some of its ultimate uh, fulfillments and impacts are yet to be realized in days ahead. Um, but, but isn't that what we should expect from our holy God who is the God who was and is and is to come, right? His work spans all time. Now, Jewish tradition had this psalm sung during all of the annual feasts, but in particular, there was a focus on Passover and tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. Um, and just a quick roadmap of kind of where um, this worshiper will take us. He'll lead us in kind of three sections. There will be a call to praise directed to those of us who know to worship. Uh, you'll hear that we're being stirred to yield, um, to publicly, visibly join the redeemed, and to offer the praise that he's indeed worthy of. Then you'll hear the, the king express kind of his reasons for the worship, his experiences with God's faithfulness uh, and the love uh, that he recounts for all and that would be rehearsed by all. And then I'm hopeful that we'll recognize almost above all that, um, that his goodness extends in spite of Israel's failures. We'll see in this psalm the shadow of literally catastrophic disobedience. And yet... Um, 
a disobedience that is still not outside of the Father's sovereign will. And rather than preventing redemption, in his sovereignty, it serves to establish it forever, just as he intended. And, and how can you not be uh, completely humbled in the presence of that kind of sovereign love? So I pray we'll see that, that his mercy extends in ways that even the, the writer king himself just couldn't really comprehend, uh, as, as the Lord does in his life and in our lives abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. Finally, the psalmist will lead us sort of in a physical procession. You'll see the, the, the text will move us towards a, a going up to worship. He'll call us to praise the Lord. Um, as an entry to the temple and an assembly of the people who have been chastened, who've been brought near and purified, are, are freshly set apart uh, to accomplish the Lord's purposes. They, they have reestablished relationship, renewed participation in the Lord's plan to redeem. So let's begin to read verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And again, this statement of grace and goodness serves as an incredible bookend in this psalm. It's opened and it's closed with this, and I think that's important. I think you'll see that it is, but um, it it would grieve me were it only at the beginning of the psalm, and we didn't hear its refrain after the, the epic failure that, that we'll witness that's, that's foreshadowed. Again, this, this characterization of the Lord as good and as merciful, right? We know not just a New Testament thing in any way. He is good. It's not merely that he does good, right? And that's why we can count on that from him. Uh, I think it was Spurgeon who said, um, those who worship or who praise the Lord for the good that he does would be wise to come up and to praise him for the good that he is, right? That's, that's wisdom to me. It's a, it's a stronger call to know him regardless of the blessing of the moment. So the, the Hebrew phrase that uh, describes his enduring mercy here is chesed olam. Don't try that out there. You'll spit on each other. Um, but it, it just means, it literally means his unmerited favor from vanishing point to vanishing point. In, in particular, the word olam is a, it's used more than 400 times in the Old Testament, and it almost always refers to that length of time or extreme duration that we would just call forever. Right? It's meant to indicate oh, his mercy endures forever. You can't see its beginning. More importantly to us, you can't see its end. You can't see it in a time or place or situation where it's been exhausted, where his nature changes, and yet... Um, here's something we need to deal with right up front. The Lord himself has declared that though his nature, his character will remain unchanged, at some point he will no longer deal with men according to that mercy. In his time, as he has appointed, there there will be a setting aside of that merciful dealing. Right? Uh, Because he has chosen, there will be a time when the cup of his wrath over man's rebellion and rejection will have reached its full. It will be filled to the brim. And that will include, unfortunately, how he'll end up dealing with the people Israel in, in days yet future. Right? It's, it's a wonderful and awesome thing that he'll continue to do. Um, but again, how sobering that the very ones that he chose to bring his, salva- his salvation forth from and for Um, that they would end up in that place of having to be dealt with that way. So uh, moving to the next verses, the psalmist begins to call for individual groups uh, to respond, sections to begin to join him in this praise. Verse two, let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. These expanding circles of worship um, is exactly what the Lord has intended. The people and the priesthood and the planet, right? This is his, this is his desire for Israel. This is what he's always intended to do. And, and here you'll see there's now five times that this phrase is repeated in this psalm. It's, you know, as we've just come from a time of musical worship, it's the baseline, right? It's the beat that draws us through and that, and that is consistent and helps us understand who he is and how he's working. 
Again, the, the psalmist is not urging just for some mere uh, outward response, some echo of a thing said just so you can have a service, right? This is, this is a heartfelt declaration from people who know who he is, people who've experienced his goodness, as, as David himself is going to unpack. That, that dead um, echo and response, that chanting, you know, it, it's, it's an anesthetic to the soul, it's a deadening. That's not what the Lord has called us to. We don't have to praise him as some religious duty, right? It flows out of a heart that recognizes what he's done for us. Now, verse four, um, I have to say, it, it's a, I think it's a very specific, a very intentional reminder that God's heart with and through Israel has always been to bring the nations in, right? He specifically mentions those who fear the Lord. This is, this is referring to those in the throng of worship who were from outside Israel, but had seen the light that Israel had been given and are drawn to worship, to, to the worship of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're referred to in scripture as proselytes, uh, God-fearers, devout men, men worshiping God. Uh, Solomon, in fact, in Second Chronicles, numbers them at 153,600 within Israel, right? It's an amazing chorus that the Lord is gathering to proclaim his glory. So we see moments of that having the effect that the Lord desired it to have. Uh, through Isaiah, as Isaiah is speaking of Messiah's complete work, um, as, the, as Israel and Judah have been separated, right? He proclaims in Isaiah 49, he says, of Messiah, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth, right? This is always the Lord's intention. Uh, maybe you'll recall Simeon's um, prophetic praise in the temple, right? When he held Messiah in his arms. Luke 2 recounts it in beginning in verse 28, it says, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And I, I love this. Simeon declares salvation is a person, right? You, we'll see in this psalm, acts of the Lord that are acts of deliverance, Simeon is declaring that he's holding the salvation of God, that salvation is a person. That's fantastic. It's amazing. So this clear um, picture of the promised work of the Lord through Israel to include the nations, his goodness, uh, it's, it's what we should see. We should see it everywhere in the Old Testament, uh, we should see the, the Jewish people serving to reflect the Lord to a lost planet. And yet, we know that's not anywhere near as frequent as it, as it should have been, right? We're, we're not in that day yet, though earth has not yet seen the Lord have his way fully with that. But it's a day that's coming. And this is, this is why Jesus is so grieved by the hearts of those in religious leadership who'd been entrusted with leading this people, Right? leaders who were watching over Israel as he walked among them, and yet who were so far away for the Lord's, from the Lord's heart for their own lives and for their impact, right? They had become obstructive to redemption. It's almost insane. Like the Lord's purpose is to use these people to reach a lost planet, and yet they, they're in the way when Jesus is ministering, and he's not shy about telling them that. And so I just want to pause here to just ask the difficult question of myself or of any of us. Are, are any of us perhaps in danger of missing the Lord's point for our redeemed lives? Are we in some way striving maybe to stay away from all, all the broken and shattered people? Right? Do I steer clear of those who may still be enslaved uh, to their fleshly desires or those who are held captive to serving the enemy of their souls? They might make us dirty. Am I so far away from them that I can't reach them with this very message of his everlasting mercy? I, I'll, I'll leave us with this question for now. Can an ambassador be effective if they only dwell in their home country? Right? To, to represent the one who we represent, we have to go to people who don't know him. 
So again, this, this grieved the Lord, obviously. The psalmist moving forward begins to recount the challenges that the nation of Israel was facing. And again, he's the king of Israel legitimately. And so, you know, part of the job description is, well, the king's problems are Israel's problems and Israel's problems are the king's problems. So you'll see, you know, that there's just a, a, a very personal, a first person expression of these are the issues. But we need to recognize that he's speaking on behalf of the nation. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord's redempted, redemptive work altogether, right? So he says in verse five, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. Again, the distress here um, speaks literally of a narrow place, uh, a place of closing in where everything around feels like and, and likely is threatening uh, to bring harm or to diminish. Uh, you probably don't know it, but uh, you're f- at this moment in this room, you're 44 miles from Tight Squeeze, Virginia, right? Uh, just, you, okay, that's free. You know, you didn't know that, but it brings to mind just that reality of, of a, uh, a narrowing, a constricting that, that threatens to prevent what you know should happen. And this is, this is what is in the heart of the king. This is his fear um, at times. He's, he's proclaiming that in this moment, I cried out to the Lord. Um, and what was the cause of Israel's distress? Again, they're the visible work of God's redemption in this time on the planet. What caused them distress? It, it could have been current or pending, you know, attack from surrounding nations or people. It could have been those who desired um, jealously to have what had been given to Israel. You won't go there now, but Ezekiel 36 uh, reveals the heart of surrounding nations when it says, um, your enemies have taunted you saying, aha, now the ancient heights belong to us. This has always been you know, the, the work of the enemy, that those things that God's people have received from him, they want, but they want without the relationship. That, that we have. And so that could have been the stress. It may have been uh, referring to those who opposed David's ascension to the, to the king. You know, he, you recall he was anointed and much time elapsed prior to his rising to, uh, to power. So it could be that. And it could be those who may have opposed him or resisted him as he um, led, as he ministered as king. We don't know. The, the, the psalmist hasn't given us that specifically. He's just laid out for us this pattern that I was squeezed to the point, we were squeezed to the point where the desired outcome was in jeopardy. We weren't sure it would come forth, and I cried out to the Lord. And, and that's, you know, we certainly, at a minimum, we get to walk away with that as a way to consider what to do in, in any trouble, right? When squeezed, cry out. Um, I've done a lot of things in the midst of distress that I don't think could be categorized as crying out to the Lord. I've, I've whined out to some of you. I've complained out, but, you know, crying out to the Lord, it's always the right answer. Any trouble we face, it, it's the way to go. And yet, I, I, want, I want us to see that in context, he, the king is not proclaiming God's faithfulness when I have a bad Tuesday, though that's true but it's faithfulness to the work that he's committed. It's faithfulness to the work of redemption. As we're engaged with that, we can, we can know with unparalleled confidence we'll not be moved. His work is not gonna be stopped. He's not gonna be put off from what he's doing, right? He goes on to declare in verse six, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, how quick are men to claim the Lord is on their side? Right? History is, is replete with it. You know, the God is on, you know, he's on our side. Listen, our, we don't have the privilege of enlisting God's support for our agendas. We're called to submit our lives to his. Right? And his agenda as the king of Israel and the nation is to bring forth redemption. Um, so, so if I want to have this kind of confidence, if I want to have a settled assurance that I'm working for what will endure, it's when I contend for righteousness. It's when I labor to extend his kingdom that I can know that this holds true. God is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So this worshiper, David, has tasted. He's seen that the Lord is true to all that he's proclaimed. 
All of the good works he's foretold, the Father is faithful to. This is the confidence that, that David's expressing. And, and we can be emboldened to stand and wait for his deliverance in the midst of doing his will. Right? This work of power, uh, his kindness to be revealed in our lives as we, as we labor for the kingdom, we know that he will do that. Now listen, obviously, we're not the king of Israel. We're not advancing the Lord's plan of redemption for an entire nation, I get it. But as we align ourselves with what the Lord is doing, as we submit ourselves to his plan for redemption, we can take that comfort. We can... We can Declare also that we're properly sided, right? Jesus said to us, seek first his kingdom and righteousness and all the rest will be added. So we, we can walk in that same confidence as, as this becomes the focus of our lives. The last half of verse six is a rhetorical question and those should always kind of slow down your reading. Let them be speed bumps for your heart, right? They're, they're to point you to an obvious answer, but what is the obvious answer? Um, this verse is not meant to be taken, you know, flipply to mean, you know, well, no harm can ever befall me because I'm a follower of Jesus. No, what, what, the, what the worshiper is declaring is that the work is not in jeopardy, so I, I won't fear. But, but there is an answer to the question of what can man do to me, isn't there? there? There are some very real answers. The work won't be thwarted, but Fox's Book of Martyrs is filled with the reality of what, the, what man can do. Isaiah, you know, his account reflected in Hebrews. He was sawn asunder, right? There's much that man can do, even though we're completely devoted to what the Lord has asked of us. What can man do? Man can plot against. Man can contrive false charges. Man can hold a kangaroo court at night. Man can bribe lying witnesses. Man can scourge you and pull out your beard and hang you on a tree. So it's not that man can't do anything. It's that man can't do anything that will divert the work that the Lord has declared. That's where our rest is. That's where our trust is. We know from Jesus' life that, you know, harmless, you know, harm-free living is not the promise. Quite the contrary. Luke 12, he says to us as friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. Right? He tells us to fear the Lord. Um, our bodies can be harmed. Jesus tells us, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Man can kill us. And, and the reality is that they will. Um, as we maintain a testimony for Jesus, as we preach a narrow way of salvation, as we declare to a lost world that there is no other name, as we uh, go forth with the good news of his great grace, as we mention the accountability for sin for every man, for every person, as we, as we proclaim the very fact of his soon return, that's not going to be welcomed, is it? It's gonna, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And yet, we can, the confidence we can have is that man can't divert us from it. Man can't prevent it. Man can't stop what the Lord is doing. It's a, it's a great source of rejoicing. We need not fear. In fact, we're going to see in this psalm, I think, that man's best efforts to prevent, to subvert the work of the Lord, they only serve it, right? Every, every spiritual fire that the Lord ignites and that fallen men try to quench, they only fan it to flame. In John 16, Jesus says again um, that he's spoken these things to us, and, and he tells us that they'll to Jewish followers, that they'll put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they'll do to you because they have not known the Father or me. How ironic that the persecutors of the work of redemption of the Lord will also claim, oh, God is on our side. God's asked me to do this. Right? We can anticipate it happening. Maybe not in Lynchburg now, but it's, it's common everywhere else on the globe. I, I, you know, my mind went to Stephen, you know, the, the, uh, a faithful servant who preached himself to death, and as he did, he saw the Lord himself stand to receive him. Why could he do that? Because he knew God was on his side, not to preserve his life, but to proclaim the king. Or uh, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? In, in front of a tyrant ruler who had legislated idolatry, they said, we won't bow down. Why were they able to do that? Because they knew God was on their side. They were rightly connected to the work he had done. They didn't say, they, they, they admitted that the Lord could deliver them, but what did they say? Even if he doesn't, we won't bow down, right? The Lord's work is not stoppable regardless of what it'll cost. And so the question for me, for you, is, is am I really rightly aligned with the Lord's purposes for my life? Do I have that confidence that, that God is on my side because I'm devoted to what he's doing on the earth? That's a little different than I come to church. And, and again, I'm glad you're here. You know, no, no slam intended, but in terms of a, a life devoted to the work of the Lord, are the decisions of my life, including my possible death, are they made in light of who he's revealed himself to be and all that he's done and all that he's doing to reach those that don't know him yet? And again, don't, you don't go home and say, well, the pastor said last night that you know we all have to be in full-time Christian ministry. That's not what he said. What he said is we have to have lives that are consumed with the work of the Lord. Verse 7, David continues, The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. And again, for, for David, you know, he's, he's described by God as a man after his own heart. So the Lord is for him, right? As he's, he's completely dedicated to doing what the Lord has called him to, to having the impact of uh, leading a righteous nation and preparing the way for Messiah. But this desire... The desire on those who hate, you know, it has a different application for uh, a nation that's been given a territory and a mandate to drive out a people and to rule and reign there. You know, that's a different calling um, than it has, than, than we have, right? For us, we're called as ambassadors, we're called to advance the work of the gospel. We're not displacing Gentile nations. Now, we're, we are in a battle, no doubt about it, but we're supernaturally empowered to go forth with the same chesed olam, the same everlasting mercy that the psalmist is proclaiming here to those enemies, right? Lost people who need to hear this song of praise. They need to be drawn to it. So our desire towards those who hate us, obviously, is to bring them to Jesus, right? No matter their political persuasion or their brokenness of lifestyle, our call is to go to them with this grace, with this everlasting mercy, because it's for them. That's why we continue to live and move and have our being, so we can be a part of the Lord reaching them, right, to win them. And we'll see more on this as we look at the, the final verses. You know, David and Israel learned something about how this work can and should go forth. Verses 8 and 9, he declares, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence even in princes. Uh, you know, the, the immediate context here uh, is really important, especially with regard to God's redemptive work. Uh, he's, not, he's not hiring from without. You know, he doesn't need fallen nations or strategies that are from the world to accomplish his purpose, right? This is vital to the king. And, and David knew this because as a king, he probably wrote Israel's history out himself, and he has record of how many times Israel has failed in this same way. Um, Daniel, in, in Daniel eleven twenty seven prophesies of end-time princes that rise up, and of them, the, this king of the north and king of the south, he declares, both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. Listen, so this, this is you know, God's grace. He's prophesied what will be for the Jewish people in the last days, and there's this declaration that, yeah, leaders are going to rise and fall, and they're wrangling, and that is not your way, right? On their best day, as they go through their machinations and try to accomplish what's in their minds, it's not happening. They don't move they don't move the needle. They're not changing the time or the plan for the Lord. He doesn't have to adjust, right? They, they come and they go, right? 
It's not wise to trust in, in princes. The Lord had scolded Israel for this same kind of misplaced trust in local kings in Isaiah 36. And Isaiah is quoting from 2 Kings. And he, and he says, look, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it'll go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Right? This isn't the Lord's way forward. And we know the coming Antichrist himself. Uh, he's going to make his way forward by political intrigue. He, he rises to power based on lies. He's a covenant breaker and a deceiver. Right? It's not wise to trust in princes. It's not the Lord's need to put our trust, our hope, for redemptive proclamation of, of, of the everlasting grace of God. We don't need that. We've been given the truth and the power to proclaim it. And listen, this truth, it applies from verses 8 and 9, it applies in every generation. Um, but I, I'm going to propose to you that never more important than when we're considering the Lord completing his work in Israel. And we live in a moment when that seems to be unfolding. I, I don't know when. I'm not telling you I know dates or anything. I'm just telling you we're privileged to watch the Lord unfolding that plan. And never more than now should we commit ourselves to not putting our trust in princes. Our trust is in the Lord. This is his work. This is his idea. It's going according to his timing, at his pace, and there's a remnant that he will have, right? I don't, I don't know where a prince fits in that. I don't need that. The Lord doesn't need that. And it's a strong reminder to me just in any work of ministry that we would endeavor to be a part of, right? Um, as we seek to proclaim the king, to advance his kingdom, and then because of that work, we find ourselves in, in the tight squeeze. We find ourselves um, with the prospect, the specter of what if this doesn't continue, right? We call out to the Lord. We, we, we put our trust, we put all of our weight on the work of the Holy Spirit in us, not in, not in the arm of the flesh. He continues in verses 10 through 12, all nations surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Again, this is depicting the opposition to the Lord himself as expressed you know, among the nation of Israel. The, the enemy of redemption, who we see from the garden on, opposing the Lord's plan at every turn, right? He's at work in this to try to obstruct and delay and, and destroy the beauty of what the Lord is doing. And, and the King David is declaring this is what he sees. And again, this has been true throughout Israel's history, right? Um, throughout the psalmist's walk with the Lord. And I, I wish we could say with confidence, well, this is only their, their painful history, but that's not what the scriptures teach, is it? Right? And there's no way that we'll have time to go through almost any of it, but read Ezekiel 38, where this kind of literal surrounding is described, and it's not resulting in Israel's destruction, is it? It results in the very thing that the psalmist declares, that he brought me into a broad place. The Lord's going to use it to draw forth a remnant. It's going to be horrific. It's not what the Lord desired for them, but it serves him. He doesn't need a plan B. Many of the yet unfulfilled prophecies in Scripture depict that kind of final devastation for nations that were historically uh, at odds with Israel. Jordan, uh, the peoples of Edom, Moab, and Seir. Uh, Egypt. Go home and read Isaiah 19, please. It depicts utter devastation unlike has ever taken place to that nation because of their opposition. And yet, it ends with those remaining from Egypt doing what? They're coming up to Jerusalem to worship the king on his throne. Right? There is an everlasting grace and mercy that's extended even to them as they celebrate the Lord in Jerusalem. This is the work that he's doing. So they've been surrounded consistently. So we can have confidence with this worshiper, David, that their end is certain and their end is sudden. He talks about swarming bees. You know, they're not pleasant and you wouldn't choose them, but they're not a threat to life unless you're allergic, right? They're, they're 
intended to describe an intense annoyance that isn't, you know, existential. It doesn't stop the work. I don't know if you've ever burned thorns before. I live in the woods. We burn everything. You burn thorns, it's different. It's like that. They're, it, for a moment, it's snap, crackle, pop, and then they're, liter- they're just gone. There's nothing left. There's not sticks. There's nothing. It's just gone. These are the nations opposing the Lord. They, they will come. They will continue. There will be a rise in them. I'm not saying it's not a thing, but it's not a thing that we need to worry about is going to threaten what the Lord is doing. So David continues speaking of those who were opposing him. You pushed me violently, verse 13, that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Right? This sounds familiar. This refrain comes from the song of Moses in Exodus. It's the same worship that Israel sang after the Lord delivered them, and it's repeated by Isaiah as well. Let me read to you what um, a commentator, McLaren, has to say about this because it says it way better than I could. The people thus delivered, the singer breaks into the ancient strain which had gone up on the shores of the sullen sea that rolled over Pharaoh's army and is still true after centuries have intervened. Yah is my strength and song. He is become my salvation. Miriam sang it. The restored exiles sang it. Tried and trustful men in every age have sung and will sing it till there are no more foes. And then, by the shores of the sea of glass mingled with fire, the calm victors will lift again the undying song of Moses and of the Lamb. He has become my salvation. Now listen, this is truer than the writer knew. And I've never written a song, but I can't imagine writing something that has more meaning and depth than I intended it to have. But that's prophetic scripture. That's the work of the Lord. Um, It means more. Listen, David knew some things. He knew that he would have an heir to rule in his place. He knew that the Lord was taking care of Israel through his line. I don't know that he knew that it would be fulfilled literally through both the lines of Mary and Joseph. I don't know that he knew that she would bring forth a son and call his name Jesus, call his name salvation. Again, you have become my salvation. Salvation is a person. For he will save his people from their sins. Not just from their regional enemies, from their sins. This is the deliverance they needed. Also in Matthew 1, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, translated God with us, right? Jesus came down, God in human flesh. He didn't just provide salvation, he became it. Again, that's the meaning of the word Yeshua, Jesus' name in Hebrew, salvation. The Father Through the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, he chooses to tabernacle among us in the Son. He humbled himself to come down. And listen, let me be clear. I don't think the psalmist is intending to teach the incarnation. I don't think he knows. I don't think he can see it. He might not, you know, be allowed to. I don't know. But I don't think that's what he's intending to teach. But the incarnation declares how true the psalm is, right? The, The work of the Lord reflects just how amazing what was stated without knowing really is. It's truer than he knew. Verse 15, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. Perhaps this was a reference to Sukkot. As Israel was delivered from Egypt, they spent time in tents. And what do you think? And they spent time in tents, and specifically it indicates that in doing so, they were able to see the stars. And so today, as Sukkot is celebrated in Israel, it's supposed to be open-topped so that they can look out and reflect on that time in the wilderness, having come from the deliverance. But all that to say, uh, the noise got out. Right? What, do you, what do you think the conversation, the proclamation, the joy was like in those homes, in those families? And is that the song that rises up from my home or from, for your home? Do, do we, are, are our homes these places of, um, of declaration? Is that what comes forth from the tents of the righteous? In 1 Samuel 4, uh, there's an example of uh, Israelites 
routing the Philistines, and, and this is what it says, uh, beginning in verse 5, it says, And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, so the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp, and they said, Woe to us! For such a thing has never happened. And family, we have more than the presence of the tabernacle, right? We have become the dwelling place of God. Throughout all time, our praise, right, has, has rised up. And, it, and it, as we declare God's delivering work, it puts the enemy on notice that his defeat is already taken place and that the time is short. Let us sing like that. Right? Let all of our song be infused with that understanding. Verse 15 and on, he continues, The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Uh, you know, uh, Pastor Jeff Schlenz last Sunday reminded us that our God does as he pleases. Right? His right hand is valiant. He is exalted by it. Um, Jesus, our salvation, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And that, that right hand, it just speaks always of his power, his skill, his ability. Jesus in John 11 uh, declares to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Right? Our hope is in the life that the Lord provides. Paul in Galatians sort of uh, brings this together, at least for me. And, and he declares in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, right? Uh, do, I, I wonder sometimes, do I tend to pray just for preservation or deliverance? Or do I pray with the hope to be able to declare the deliverer? There's a difference, isn't there? So, so praise isn't a job that we need to do. It's what flows out of knowing the Lord like this, right? It's amazing. It's our response to the Lord. We should, uh, as we've tasted his everlasting mercy, we should become those who declare, who proclaim him. Verse 18, the Lord has chastened me severely, but he's not given me over to death. And you know, uh, this is where you know, the water gets deep for my heart, but what, is, what should it mean to us that the Lord has brought forth this kind of praise for himself from those who he's led through great difficulty, right? They've, they've suffered consequences, from their own disobedience. He's lovingly disciplined them, but he continues to declare his love. He leads them, and he maintains his promises to them. And I can only think how much more can we as the disciples of Jesus then trust him in trial, cling to him in any narrowness of life or ministry, and then also count fully on being able to praise him in his deliverance. So the psalmist now shifts. He begins to lead this assembly, this body, into public corporate worship. They proclaim together the praise that he's due, and they're, they're likely fit picture a physical procession at this point. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. And listen, a, a way, an approach to the worship of the Lord had been set forth for them, and it wasn't open to debate, and you couldn't climb you know, over the wall. Uh, those who entered were just thankful that entrance was made possible, period. But this very one who's become our salvation, right, he's declared that narrow is the way, that straight is the gate to salvation, and that he is the way, right? He's become our righteousness, 1 Corinthians says. Verse 21, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. And now again, Jesus, just like David here, praised his father for his sovereignty in providing salvation. At the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciple the night, the, 
the disciples the night that he was betrayed. Matthew and Mark's gospels both recount it. Um, in Matthew 26, 30, it's very brief, and we probably read right by it all too often. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, that, you know, that's nice. This psalm is what they sang. It was the final of the six Hallel Psalms. And it's so much heavier in my, in my heart and mind that, that the Father is prophetically proclaiming the rejection of Jesus by his own people in this moment. Right? An active betrayal that's going to fully uh, and permanently secure for both the Jewish and Gentile world his offer of redemption. Right? That the nations themselves would hear and receive repentance for forgiveness of sins, they would be reached because the Jewish Messiah was about to be rejected by Israel the next morning. And I, again, it boggles my mind. How amazing is it that, that though Israel had sung this specific psalm and these next verses in particular for over a thousand years, that refrain had risen up. And yet, when Jesus says, I must go up to Jerusalem and be delivered, they're against it at every turn. They resist it. With the disciples on this night in particular having just sung it with Jesus, their own words are still echoing in their ears. And Peter in the garden pulls out a sword to try to prevent it, right? And each of them desert him. It seems they, they, can't, they can't see, they can't recognize Jesus would step down into the picture of these next verses. He becomes the one to experience what this worshiper David had understood in a much smaller way. And, and Jesus is going to experience it to a degree that I don't think any Jewish person or Gentile could have ever imagined. It's, it's the, th these next verses are the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, I think for strong reason. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Right? It's declaring that what's about to be discarded secures the structure. Right? We hear cornerstone, we think bottom and beginning of a building, it's capstone. And it, and it provides the strength to what's being built. It holds it together. And again, for David, there may have been clear individuals, nations who were resisting the work that he's thinking of. It may have been his understanding of Israel's role itself, um, it, you know, being disdained by surrounding empires. It could have been the king himself in his role. You remember, he's the overlooked brother who was left out of the king's search, right, when that was unfolding. Uh, and so there is a degree of truth to, uh, to all of that, to uh, the king being uh, a stone that was rejected, but it's become chief, and yet this is Jesus, right? This is the work of Jesus. It's the most amazing thing to ever happen on the planet, and the key to redemption, the, the crux of Satan's defeat, it seems was almost impossible for them to recognize up close. They didn't comprehend what had been proclaimed about the seed of the woman. He shall bruise you on the head, but you, Messiah, will be bruised on the heel. Again, time and distance give us perspective, right? Um, we're privileged to have had this illuminated to us by the Holy Spirit, but uh, to whom much is given, much is required, right? We see this. And, and Jesus tells us in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I want us to remember that as we think about taking the message forth that we not be frustrated with those who aren't seeing because the Spirit of the Lord Right? Not the arm of the flesh, not trust in princes or an approach to evangelism. The Spirit of the Lord will reveal to men this truth, and we can trust in that. So it's so much more significant when you see that the Lord has been declaring this triumph from the beginning, that the very one who opens to us the gates of righteousness, right, that straight way that Jesus spoke of, it's his selfless act that gives us access to, to join the throng of worshipers. Now, the New Testament uh, makes plain 
who these builders are, right? I love that scripture interprets scripture. It do, it's not uh, allegoric, it's not symbolic. You know, the, the, the disciples name names. There's no way we can go through all of this, but, but Jesus had first declared it to the builders in real time. In Luke 20, uh, he tells a, a parable, right? A, a parable of a, a vineyard owner. And he describes a vineyard owner who entrusted what was his to those who would watch over it, expecting that they would bring forth what was right. Uh, and he sends emissaries to receive to himself what was right, and they're mistreated, uh, they're turned away, they're beaten. And in verse 13 of Luke 20, it says, the, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send him my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. And then he, Jesus, looked at them and said, what then is this that's written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Meet the builders, right? In Acts 4, uh, Peter and James heal at the gate of the temple, the beautiful gate. Um, and that causes all kinds of ruckus. Again, it, it can't be put off, but it's, it's irritating. It's bees. Um, but as they're hauled before the, the tribunal and, and interrogated, verse 8 of Acts 4 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, right, that same boldness of God is on my side. I'm doing what the Lord's enabled me to do. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed, done a helpless man by what means it's been, he's been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man, stands before you whole. This stone, which was rejected by you builders. Luke records what Peter says, not what the psalm said. Peter names names. This stone, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other. What a, what a boldness, what a joy, what an amazing declaration uh, to those who had perpetrated the wrong. And what, and what do you make of the statement that the Lord himself has reigned sovereign over this, in, this, this um, rejection, right? Verse 23 says, it's the Lord's doing. Well, continuing in, in Acts 4, um, starting around uh, verse 23, uh, but they're, they're interrogated, they're eventually released, they go back to the fellowship, they declare what's happened, and they begin to pray. Um, and they pray, Lord, your God, you made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the mouth of your servant David had said, and then he quotes from Psalm 2, why did the nations rage and the people plot what kind of things? Vain things, things that Nations attempt that don't change the outcome of the Lord's plan. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Verse 27 and 28, importantly. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. This is, this is tragic rejection that never leaves the power of a sovereign God's plan of redemption. And in fact, he, he makes it work for him. He, he uses it to ensure that the salvation he's proclaimed will go as far as he's declared it and it will accomplish all that he's desired. Uh, it blows me away. But marvel also with me at, at the rest of their prayer, would you? In verse 29, now, Lord, look on their threats and crush our enemies. 
right? Drive out the kings, you know. No. Look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Whoa. So they respond to this truth of all Israel's rejection by passionately praying for signs and wonders so that they can minister to, so they can present salvation among the same ones who've rejected Jesus. You know what you call that? It's everlasting mercy alive in the hearts of his people. That's the only thing that does that. It's unbelievable. Everlasting mercy on display. How do you, com- how do you comprehend a song written more than 3,000 years ago, and, and yet its words are more true today than ever? Again, it has, to, it has to bring us to a place of full submission. It has to humble us. Uh, it has to motivate us to be proclaimers among the lost. Uh, we'll begin to wrap here. Um, Jason, you can have the worship team start making their way up. Verse 25, David continues, Save now, I pray, O Lord. I pray, send now prosperity. Not, not uh, TV prosperity, real spiritual prosperity. The fullness of the Holy Spirit to accomplish uh, the work of salvation. Save now. You know, uh, this may bring to your mind names and faces right? Um, People that you know that need to know and that don't. Uh, Lord, uh, let this cry rise up from our hearts. Lord, send now uh, spiritual prosperity among your people here in, in Lynchburg. Let us be those proclaimers. Blessed is he, verse 26, who comes in the name of the Lord. We've blessed you from the house of the Lord. You know, just before Passover had commenced, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, the people had in fact mouthed these exact words from the psalm. They had spoken it. They had trusted in them in that moment. In Matthew 21, uh, 6 through 9, you know, it declares they, they cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And yet, a few days later, Jesus is literally convulsed with grief. He's racked with sobs uh, because he says, you were not willing to be gathered by Messiah, by the promised one. See, he says in verse 38 of Matthew 23, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I I just want us to know if you're Jewish, if you're Gentile, uh, this salvation is open to you. There there is a coming remnant. There is a moment in in the Lord's dealing with Israel, even in difficulty, even in in judgment, when he will bring forth a, a crop where there will be all Israel being saved, whatever that means quantity-wise, it's beyond me. But this salvation is open, and uh, I, I want us to know that as we're heading into uh, a time of communion. If, uh, also, if the ushers could come forth and open the tables. We're going to enter a few songs of worship. During that time, please come forth, take the elements. Um, the stacked cups, bread is underneath, the juice is on top, and you'll go back to your seats and hold them. We'll take them together. But, but listen, if, if you know the Lord like this, if you understand that his mercy to you has been everlasting and that he's going to accomplish what he's determined um, in you, through you, to those he's trying to reach through, through your life and through the gifting he's given you, if that describes you, feel free to partake. If it doesn't describe you, you know, Paul gave clear warning, admonition to the Corinthians not to take the cup in an unworthy manner. And listen, it's not that if any have sinned that that makes you unworthy. The whole point of the cup is we're broken and in need of Jesus. So, so we declare as we take it together that we need the Lord. We need redemption. So, so if you've fallen and are repentant, uh, don't rule yourself out. Participate in the celebration of his goodness. 
But if you're not, if you're, if you're in sin and you have no intent to move away from it, then just, then just don't come up. Just uh, sing with us and watch what the Lord is doing. So we'll enter into a time of worship that this psalm ends with that same giving of thanks to the Lord. He is good. His mercy endures forever. So let's, let's worship as you take the elements.